everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Rochelle Barber has worked as an assistant federal defender at the Sacramento Federal Court for over 20 years. She's our guest this week on Everyday Injustice. Welcome. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. Um, so um, I guess talk a little bit about your work as a, a federal uh, defender and how did you come to uh, doing that? Yeah, I, it's not, I don't think it's what I planned to do when I went to law school. Um, I came out of law school and clerked for a judge in San Francisco in a civil court and realized really quickly that I, I, that was not the world I wanted to practice in. I, I really liked my crim law classes. I really liked working with people, for people, um, being able to help them go, and go through a really tough time in their lives. Um, so I was very drawn to that and public defense seemed like a great way to be able to help the people that I wanted to focus on. So is it basically a public defender in federal court? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um, you know, our district is huge. Uh, we're in the Eastern District of California here in uh, you know, Sacramento and Davis. Um, we're in the Northern part of the district. It goes all the way to the Oregon border, goes all the way over to the Nevada border, contains the Sierras. It goes all the way down to Bakersfield. It is a huge district and it's a fascinating place to practice law because we have big urban centers, we have big rural areas, we see all kinds of stuff. So it definitely is, you know, public defender, federal court, um, but it, it captures a lot more than I think a, uh, you know, Sacramento County public defender would see uh, routinely. Well, definitely. Uh, a few years ago, I covered, it was actually a civil case, uh, in federal court, but uh, it, it went to trial. And so the jury pool went from like, uh, you know, Chico and Redding all the way down uh, to Sacramento and Yolo County. Uh, so, I mean, it was a tremendously broad uh, cross-section of, of people. And our cases can take a long time. And um, imagine being a juror from Red Bluff and Coming, you know, coming down to do a federal case that might take weeks. Um, so we're asking a lot of our jurors uh, and they do come from all over. It's really interesting. Yeah, the one we covered was uh, a multi-week, uh, you know, police shooting case. So, I mean, it was intense and it was long. Yeah, yeah. Um, federal cases 
you know, I, well, I'll tell you about the clinic and we do quite a bit of misdemeanor work there, but federal felonies tend to be very involved and the ones that go to trial are often pretty serious cases that take a while. And tell us a bit about the clinic. Sure. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I work for the federal government. That's the great thing about being a public defender is that the government pays us to fight the government. So it's, it's kind of perfect as far as, um, you know, being able to do direct work on behalf of the people that our own government is trying to put in jail. It's pretty amazing. Um, but we also have a clinic with McGeorge School of Law. Uh, it was started about 10 years ago. We've always had law students in our office and we always had law students from McGeorge that would come for a term or a summer and learn, you know, what public defenders do. And, and you know, often they would become public defenders themselves and that was great. Um, that was formalized about 10 years ago. Uh, I was not part of starting the clinic, but um, Carrie Bricker, Professor Bricker at McGeorge uh, started it with a former uh, public defender in my office and we've just kept it going. And um, we have eight students. They're all third year law students. So they're in their last year of law school. Um, they want to have the type of experience that we offer where they handle caseloads, uh, deal directly with clients, go to court, appear in court, um, do trials, file motions, you know, everything that a lawyer does our students can do in misdemeanor cases. And they have to have client consent, of course, the clients have to be fine with it. And they're usually thrilled because they get attention that is unparalleled um, from students who are really into what they're doing. So it's a lot of fun. We teach, I teach in the clinic, um, and we teach a seminar, and then we also have the students in our office. And as I understand it, that's fine as long as there's supervision, right? Oh yeah, so um, I know the state bar has its own practice rule that applies to students working in state court. Our, our federal court has a really great student practice rule, obviously requires 100% supervision of what they're doing, um, but it allows the students to get certified in through the, through the federal court to appear in misdemeanor cases. And our judges have been really great about you know, having students in front of them, treating them like real lawyers, but also taking the time to help them understand what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong, providing feedback. Uh, I think it's been a very successful program. And federal court is very different from state court in a lot of ways. Um, I, I haven't done a huge amount, but um, you know, there are sentencing guidelines and some other uh, quirks. You, are you able to kind of describe some of those sure. key differences? Sure. So, um, you know, again, big difference between felony cases and the types of misdemeanors that our students handle. But this whole idea of mandatory minimums and sentencing guidelines, um, that's all. When we're talking about that, we're talking about federal court. And we're talking about, you know, Congress and folks in D.C., making guidelines and rules that apply across the board um, so that, you know, we're seeing, for example, in, in marijuana cases or in other drug cases, you know, really, really harsh sentences, mandatory sentences, um, and then guidelines that go even above that. Um, so there's less responsiveness to what's going on in the local community than you would have 
uh, in a county setting or where you have the California legislature deciding things and they can kind of see, you know, the trends in California and respond that way. Um, we're dealing with a Congress that's pretty gridlocked anyway. So uh, even when things are changing and there's, you know, even when there's a recognition that in the past there's been some over-incarceration, some abuses of the system, it takes an awful long time for the folks in DC to fix that. And some of those things have yet to be fixed. So what, what does a typical case look like for you? Like what, what kind, I, I know, uh, <laughs> that was not a fair question. <laughs> well, um, yeah, we, we, I mean, yeah, federal cases are really different than the cases that our friends at the county PDC. Um, we don't tend to see cases of person-on-person -person violence unless there's something federal about it. I mean, that's what's odd about this is that for something to come to federal court, there has to be something federal or that can be recognized as federal to get it into federal court. Now, what's federal, you know, drugs are federal because you buy and sell them and they might get grown in another state or they might get brought across state lines. Um, computer crimes, you know, fraud. I mean, we just saw the Theranos trial in, in San Jose, you know, fraud cases can be federal because you use computers, you use uh, telephones, you use the mail. Um, what you're not going to see is street crime. You're not going to tend to see like a stolen car or a mugging or that kind of thing, unless the car that's stolen is a postal vehicle or the mugging is of a person, you know, who's doing their job as a federal worker, you know, a canvasser or something like that. So um, the typical case, we, you know, we do see a lot of pretty big drug cases. We see a lot of gun cases. Felon in possession is a case that gets brought federal a lot. And that's because of a view that in state court, the sentences are not high enough. So, um, so that there's been task forces that have used the fact that a gun is involved as a means to pull a case federal and try to hammer some folks and put them away. Um, what else do we see a lot? Yeah, fraud, um, you know, anything, like I said, it has to be federal, right? So certain right. types of benefits. Who are your clients normally? Um, they are from all over our district, uh, you know, um, we have plenty of clients from right here in Sacramento, but because our district is so large, they might be from, you know, Redding, Vallejo. Um, they, it really runs the gamut. Um, because of the types of cases that are brought federal, we might see um, drugs and gun cases that, you know, could as easily be taken into county court. Um, but we might also see fraud cases and other types of cases that you would never see in county court. And, and those types of cases are gonna be different. I mean, one, one thing that's very true, I think for federal cases is they don't tend to be reactive in the way that we see in, in county court. You know, a crime happens, someone gets caught and it gets charged the next day. These tend to be, federal cases tend to be uh, investigated for a long period of time by, you know, the FBI, the DEA, ATF, and then when they're ready to go, they go get an indictment or they file a complaint. Um, and then we're looking at a case that's already been worked up and we're trying to figure out what happened and how to help our client. 
So um, let's talk a bit about Omar Amin. Sure. Yeah, we could talk about Omar. Yeah. Um, so so what? Where is he right now? He is um, at the Golden State Annex, which is in McFarland, down by Bakersfield. Um, it's a private facility um, contracted to ICE. So he's in immigration detention right now. And so, so let's back up like 15 steps here. <laughs> um, so, so this case started in 2018, is that right? That's right, in August of 2018, yeah. And, and what, what kind of triggered um, his involvement? Uh, he was arrested in August of 2018 on an extradition complaint. So, um, you know, we'd have to back up another 15 steps to kind of get to August 15th. But, and, and some of it is, you know, beyond my knowledge. Um, but what I can tell you is somebody told somebody that they thought they saw Omar in Iraq in 2014 as an ISIS commander committing a killing. That led to um, charges in Iraqi court. That led to the U.S. government deciding they wanted to use their power to go after Omar and to arrest him and send him back. Omar is a refugee here from Iraq. Um, so that all sounds really bad, right? Like, you know, in August of 2018, that sounds pretty terrible that there is a person accused of being an ISIS commander and of killing, you know, a policeman in Iraq um, who's been living here in Sacramento. Um, and that's where that word accused of becomes really important, right? Because defense attorneys are always sort of saying, hey, presumption of innocence, these, these are mere allegations. And with Omar, that turned out to be exactly what was going on, um, that he was literally not even in Iraq at the time, that he was in Turkey um, at the time, and um, that it was absolutely false. And um, yet, he is still facing removal to Iraq um, through the immigration system, but at the very least, we won the case in our federal court in Sacramento, um, and he was released. And he's, you know, was not extradited on this case that he had nothing to do with. Um, problem being that the U.S. government is still going after him uh, as hard as they ever were. So I. I've read a few articles on this, but I'm still not clear. What was the evidence other than the, the witness or was there? I mean, that, that's pretty much it. The problem being that extradition is one of these rare beasts, even in US courts, where you don't actually have to prove that the person did anything. It's literally just, there is a ch charge out there in a different country and we have a treaty with that country and the US is deciding that, we, that they wanna send that person back. Um, which if you're dealing with countries with, you know, trustworthy criminal justice systems, it is already somewhat concerning because you're taking this person into custody, you're calling them a fugitive and you're gonna send them halfway around the world to stand trial. But the very least, maybe you have some faith that there's some evidence that's reliable behind that. Um, however, and, and, and that's why, so, and usually the U.S. does not try to do extraditions with countries that don't have 
well-functioning criminal justice systems, except that they did with Iraq in Omar's case. And why? I could only speculate why the U.S. thought it was really important in 2018 to, to talk about, you know, Muslims sneaking into our country who are secret terrorists. I mean, certainly made quite a splash politically, um, but that's the very problem. So back to your question, um, one witness claiming that, that he saw Omar um, and, you know, someone who honestly has no reason to even know who Omar is or what he would look like. And, um, and then we started digging and, and found out a lot more about that witness and who was behind him. And um, I guess I'll ask this one. How does this case then get to you? What, uh, why were you assigned to <laughs> yeah. it? Because I'm a federal public defender. So one of the wacky jurisdictional things that come to federal court is international extradition cases. Um, so it got filed in our court in Sacramento because Omar lived in Sacramento and it came to us just like every case, every new case comes to us. We take duty day and we're on call. You know, we're like like a ER physician. It's, it's our day and what comes in, we deal with. And that's exactly how things got started. Um, and we've done other extradition cases, nothing like this before, you know, in terms of the complexity and, and the fact that he's innocent. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's pretty normal for us to do extradition. It's just one of these funny jurisdictional things. But how is this case like unusual from your perspective? Well, I, I mean, you know, I wish this case was done. I wish Omar was home. Um, so in a way, you know, I'm still talking about a case where his life is at stake. Um, Omar not only is innocent, was innocent, but we could prove it, right? Like this wasn't just, I didn't do it. This was, I was 600 miles away. I had nothing to do with this. I was living my life. I had a job. My family was there. My friends were there. I was on social media. I had a cell phone. Um, and somehow that was not enough for the US government. And that's, and I don't understand. Like, there's a lot I don't understand about why the answer wasn't like, oops, I guess we're relying on the wrong people in Iraq. We probably should go figure that out. Um, but that's never been the response. Um, so, you know, it was dealing with a murder case, a death penalty case from years before in a different country with a different language where my client was himself in a third country with its own language. Um, we had to do international investigations. We had to get Omar's cell phone re uh, records from Turkey. Um, I mean, it, it's just wild. Uh, so yeah, I really hope there will be no other case like this case. Um, yeah. Well, that uh, I didn't even think about that. I mean, um, do you guys have the resources to be able to like send somebody halfway across the world and investigate this stuff? You know, when you look at what the government's willing to do, there's no end of resources that they will spend, right? I mean, the FBI agents flying around the world all the time doing investigations. And 
um, flying back and forth across the U.S. And I am lucky that our office was able to find ways for us to do this. And we also had people just offer to help. Um, you know, I mean, it was, it's amazing that uh, we were able to sort of cobble this together on the, the resources that we have. Um, and we were able, I can only think of like the type of investigation we could have done if we'd had, you know, the amount of resources that the US government continues to pour into this case. But, yeah. Yeah, but I, I, I feel like, you know, and I deal a lot with state courts and a lot of times people are really, um, public defenders unfortunately get a bad, bad name. And, um, you know, in a lot of places, especially in California, you know, you have really good public defenders and, and California is actually a well-financed system. Uh, you know, you go into other states and, uh, you know, some of the stereotypes kind of pan out, unfortunately, because they're just not putting the money into it. But I don't think a lot of people understand that, um, you know, how much money you would have to spend on a private uh, attorney to get the kind of investigation that you guys had to do, because you would have to pay for that out of pocket somehow, um, which is not cheap. Yeah, I, I... You know, I've never gone back to try to add up the hours and hours that um, we, you know, the team spent um, on this case. And, and that was necessary. I mean, every single thing we did turned out to be necessary to the judge's ultimate ruling that Omar had nothing to do with this murder. Um, I went back and sort of thought about some little just, oh, maybe I'll ask this person if they'll help us and how some of those things really did pan out and help us seal the deal when we found, when we got Omar's cell phone records. Um, and we're a well-financed, you know, federal defender agency. Um, and now Omar is in immigration court with pro bono counsel because people are not entitled to a public defender in immigration court. Um, so, you know, we still have the whole might of the federal government coming after Omar in immigration court. And he's very, very lucky um, that some excellent lawyers at Immigrant Legal Defense in Oakland were willing to take his case pro bono um, and put incredible amount of work into it. Um, that's just not fair. You know, if our government's trying to destroy someone's life, it sh should provide the defense for that person to exonerate themselves. You know, as I hear the description in this case, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the Brandon Mayfield case, um, except that in that case, um, you know, it was the Madrid bombing and uh, it was the erroneous fingerprint identification that, that tied him, but they were able to kind of figure out pretty quickly that uh, they had the wrong person. And so while, you know, he went through uh, torment for a brief period of time, he eventually got out and he didn't have to face trial and he didn't have to face extradition and, and, and all of that. Um, this is, you know, this is just prolonged agony. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, it, it was obvious from the beginning, as soon as we 
explained to Omar what was going on and what he was being accused of. And he said, you know, we thought we were getting a mistranslation, right? He was saying, but I, I wasn't in Iraq, I was in Turkey. And we were just like, wait, what? And, you know, we over and over, we took our findings to the government to say, hey, you're good people, right? You don't want to go after someone who's innocent. Like, let's talk about this. Maybe you just didn't know, you didn't realize. You didn't realize he was in Turkey at the time. It happens, you relied on the wrong people and um, nothing. I mean, you know, nothing. Just, what's just, the response? Just, well, we're gonna keep going. You know, every once in a while they would say, well, you know, he'll, he can have his trial on that in Iraq. Um, you know, he can, he can raise those defenses in Iraq. Um, and, you know- I'm not we to all, get too political here, but, you know, I can kind of understand the former administration, you know, pressing this case, but continuing it now seems a little strange too. Yeah, I, I hope that someday we'll get some accountability on all of this. Um, I definitely haven't seen any yet. Um, not only no accountability, but they are still pedal to the metal going after him. Um, and it's, it's really sad, you know? And then the fact is if he gets removed to Iraq, um, I mean, he, he will get killed. He will get tortured. Um, they will get him to say he committed this murder that he was 600 miles away from because that's how things work over there. And um, uh, the torment is unbelievable. And their only answer is, well, he can have due process in Iraq. Um, you know, they're not like the government is not even engaged in that anymore. I mean, they're they're just so focused on winning the fight that's in front of them. And right now he's in immigration court. So Omar at the end of this month will have a hearing on whether he can be removed to Iraq. And that hearing will focus on whether he is likely to be tortured and whether he's likely to be persecuted. Um, Things that seem obvious to me, having you know been living with this case since 2018, when you know one of the people behind this false case against Omar is a militia leader, a very powerful person in Iraq, and when we spoke to that person on the phone, he said, "Oh, you know, if Omar gets sent back here, I'm going to take him out of official custody, and he, I think he said do a little tribal thing and then have him executed." Um, so it's not like we don't have to sort of guess what will happen. We're being told what will happen if Omar's returned. And that's outside the Iraqi judicial process. But even within the judicial process, um, I mean, you know, Human Rights Watch has documented the torture that happens, the the 10 minute trials, the inability to produce evidence. I mean, I, you know, they don't, what are they going to do? Put on our case in Iraq? You know, how does that work? So um, I'm really scared for Omar if he's returned. I don't, I think, you know, it's horrible to say, but I think he has no shot if he's returned. And, and what do you think his chances are in immigration court? 
I think if the world is fair, the judge will look at the evidence and the experts that the immigration lawyers are presenting and the judge will see that it, that it's absolutely clear that Omar will be tortured and killed if he's returned. And if the, if the judge makes that finding, um, he should be allowed to stay here and there's all kinds of like technical stuff that I, as a public defender, I'm not, I'm not up on, you know, the lingo, um, but that he should be allowed to stay in the United States and, and be protected. Um, I mean, it, you, the fact that he was set up with a false case by Iraqi government actors that pursued him halfway around the world is pretty clear he's being persecuted. So um, that's the proof. And we'll see what the judge does with it. So are you working on any other interesting cases at the moment? <laughs> oh, it's never boring. That's part of why I like this job. Um, you know, there's always something. Um, the COVID pandemic has affected us in all kinds of ways uh, from, you know, challenging uh, our ability to communicate with our clients to, you know, clients that we have in custody who have physical issues who need a lot of help getting out. Um, I, I really like to try to help my clients who are in the community stay in the community, especially now. Um, so yeah, all, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> Just was writing a letter to an old client who may get the benefit of some of these changes in California law and may get out of uh, state prison early and, um, you know, reached out to, to try to get some help if he comes out on federal supervision. So, yeah. Never it, is the federal supervision system better than the state one? I, I would guess that there are more resources. Um, and I think that the federal probation officers are very good and, um, you know, really, it's a different system, but I think they, they are working more and more on dealing with barriers to reentry, um, figuring out how to provide resources, um, just how to help people be successful. So something I want to go back to the uh, clinic for a second. Um, you mentioned that they're working on misdemeanor cases. What, what does a federal misdemeanor case look like? <laughs> so... Yeah, um, we have a lot of federal land up in, in our district, right? Like all of this, the national forests and the Sierras, um, uh, the army depot, post offices, uh, wildlife refuges, the VA. Um, we have a lot of federal places in our district and one source of misdemeanors are all kinds of really petty little things that happen in those federal places. So I was thinking about this today because you know we were working with the students. One source of misdemeanors are just, um, there's a VA police and they patrol the, the VA. And when things happen at the VA, they file federal charges, they give people tickets. And that's something as, as little as a parking ticket at the VA is federal. So, you know, we've seen real, and that might not necessarily be something we get involved in, but we've seen, you know, someone parked in a handicapped spot at the VA or, um, you know, parked in the employee parking lot. That was a big one. 
um, you know, patients parking in their employee parking lot, employees parking in the patient spot, and the cops would write a ticket and believe it or not, and this is what's mind blowing about this system, a parking ticket at the VA is truly a federal misdemeanor, misdemeanor crime. So, um, so we handle those types of cases when they come in. Um, you know, we see it sort of seasonally up in the Sierras. You'll get the snowmobile tickets. You'll get the campfire tickets. You'll get the, you know, uh, camping out of bounds tickets. Um, you know, the, the hunting. We'll see the hunting stuff come in kind of all at once. Um, you know, taking too many ducks, using the wrong kind of uh, shot baiting ducks you know it, we had one student a couple years ago he was our duck guy somehow he we just gave him all the duck cases in a year and he he got really good at it um so it's it's kind of a wild mix and it tends to be folks who don't see themselves as criminals and that's you know probably because they're not right what they did was like stay over in a campsite six hours too long or whatever it is and um, it feels good to be able to help them when they're all of a sudden in federal court going, why am I here? Um, and then we see, you know, there's more like, there's more, I guess what we would call real crimes, um, but not that many of them, honestly. The ones on the VA tend to be veterans who maybe are having, a, are, are there for treatment, um, for, you know, drug rehabilitation for mental health issues and might get a little frisky and the VA cops come in and charge them. Um, we see quite a few of that. We actually have a dedicated vet, veterans court for those cases. And yeah, it's just, it's just sad. What about um, like marijuana possession? Is that federally a misdemeanor? Um, Marijuana is such an interesting situation, right? Because here we are in California and there's stores, there's, you know, there's, it's everywhere. Um, but yes, smoking weed at a campsite on a federal national forest could wind up getting someone a ticket for a misdemeanor um, because I, it gets enforced. It really does. Um, we, you know, we work, we have, there's a tiny little port in Yosemite. Um, which we staff and, you know, drug cases are a big part of what we see there. Just, just simple, you know, small amounts, just, you know, someone being high on something in public. Um, so yeah, we do see that. What we're not seeing thankfully is uh, for the most part, big felony marijuana cases, but we did see those for a really long time. Well, after the federal the government has stopped reading uh, cannabis dispensaries. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen one of those in quite a while, but you know, it did it did continue for a really long time after the tide had turned. Um, and like I said, you know, at the beginning, um, talking about this uh, this sort of centralization of policy in DC, you know, that we have. I don't even know, is it a majority now of states that have marijuana legalized at some level, whether medicinal or, or recreational, and we still have it being a really serious felony in federal, in the federal system. Um, and, and, you know, that I don't think anyone really thinks that's going to change anytime soon. So the only way to deal with that is by local authorities choosing not to enforce that law.
which happily that's well, I know there's been talk about legalizing marijuana federally, but it doesn't it never seems to get very far in Congress. Um, and then the other big issue, of course, is the uh, cocaine, crack cocaine disparity. Um, have you had any of those cases? I mean, we've we've had a lot of those cases, um, happily not all that many recently. And we've had a few judges that have been very brave and saying, you know what? Uh, the Sensing Commission has repudiated any reason why crack should be different than powder. DOJ has repudiated any basis for crack being different than powder. Why am I, I, I being told to sentence this person for crack much more seriously than powder? Um, so we've had some judges that have been open to hearing those arguments. Um, and what's interesting is that the legacy of that, uh, what's the right word, like that lack of cohesion, you know, the lack of fairness between crack and powder, it lives on in other things. For example, methamphetamine was equalized to crack back when crack was 100 to 1 with powder. So, you know, you start having this sort of fake numbers game where everything's made to look really scientific and really mathematical, but it's based on nothing. It's based on, you know, policies that are built on air. And, and that takes a really long time for that stuff to get unworked and, and fixed. And I don't know that we'll ever see some of that stuff get fixed. I would say it's worse than built on air. It's built on fear and racism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're looking at sort of the, <laughs> the stats that were brought to Congress in support of it, right, clearly those, those stats were built on complete racism. So uh, last question, you know, uh, what advice would you give to somebody who's thinking about becoming a, a federal uh, defender? Oh, oh, gosh, I don't know. Um, go to law school. That would be good. <laughs> Not going to do it if you don't go to law school. Um, I, I still I may maybe one of those rare people that actually thinks going to law school is a good thing to do for your career. I mean, it's, it has changed my life. Um, and I love talking to law students. And I think getting as much experience working with people, especially, you know, people who are in times of crisis. I mean, I love seeing incoming um, public defenders or students who have backgrounds in social work or counseling, um, because they're going to know our clients and they're going to meet them where they are. Um, you really, really have to have a feeling for people to do this job, but you also have to be able to operate on the, you know, the sort of legal plane and write motions and argue about the sensing guidelines. Um, so it works on both levels. Um, but I think, you know, for our students, I really want them to know what it's like to be a lawyer and to experience what it's like to be a public defender so that if they decide to do it when they get out, they can hit the ground running because it's hard. You know, you start as a PD and you get handed like cases and law school usually doesn't teach you what to do at that point. So that's our goal is to help uh, the students know what to do. Well, it's good because, you know, you become a PD and you get handed all these misdemeanor cases. So you're, you're kind of beating them to the punch a little bit. Yeah, and I'm I'm proud of our students. You know, I, we've had a lot of students go off and be PDs, and we have 
I mean, it's great for me, right? If I have a client with something pending in Orange County, I probably have a student there who's now a lawyer in the PD's office that I can, you know, say, well, how do I deal with this? So it, is, it makes for a really nice community. Um, and, you know, every year we got eight more. They don't all become PDs, but I would say a pretty decent number of them do. So, yeah, makes us proud. Well, it sounds like a great program. Um, and also want to thank you for coming on and uh, sharing that horrible story. Um, <laughs> incredible, but horrible story of yes. Omar Amin. Um, I mean, you know, every time I hear that, it just seems to get worse. Doesn't seem to be getting better. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we are we are fighting um, as hard as we can, and uh, you know, all incredible amount of credit goes to Omar's immigration lawyers who work for a small nonprofit in the Bay Area and are handling his case completely free. I mean, you know, I I get paid to, to fight the government; they don't, and. It's just incredible. And I think of all the people out there who need immigration help. And um, if people want to donate um, to these immigration, you know, pro bono defense um, firms, I think that would be a great place for folks who want to help in this area to, to be able to help. Well, thanks for coming on and sharing your story. Thanks, David. I really appreciate the opportunity too. This has been Everyday Injustice. We've been talking with Rochelle Barber. She's uh, an assistant federal defender at the Sacramento Federal Court. Um, and she's been working on an amazing case, Omar Amin. You should check it out. Um, it is an incredible story. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.